Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome, everybody, to our second Count em to Hidden History in the Making Happy Hour. Alex, welcome back, my friend. Thank Cheers. you, brother. Good to see you. I'm back on the last of my blue run. Uh, yes, with the, the order has been put in. Uh, we, we, will, we will get you taken care of. So we have a cast of thousands today, uh, almost literally, and we're going to get into that in a second. I will tell you all that our <laughs> one and only subject for today is uh, Dwight David Eisenhower. We uh, told a great short story about the uh, persistent colonel last time, which we might get into. But today we have a lot of folks along with us who know way more about Ike than we do. I will say, Alex Dean, I am drinking today scotch whiskey because I know that that was Ike's favorite. And this is from my lovely fiance, got me the Whiskey of the Month Club, the delightful Glen Shield Distillery. It's actually quite good. Excellent. I'm going to uh, have a scotch after I finish off this blue run. <laughs> or you can mix them together and make a, a rye or something. I don't know. Um, I will say this, though. I have gone the extra mile today to honor our subject, Dwight David Eisenhower, because not only am I wearing a golf shirt and drinking scotch, I actually just got off the golf course. That's how dedicated That's I how am dedicated to supporting are. Eisenhower. So. Well we're going to turn it over to these guys, but I will admit to, of course, being less dedicated than you. My commitment to Eisenhower is this. Here is my uh, Eisenhower biography by John Gunter, which I acquired in uh, 2014. Here is my notebook of uh, about Eisenhower from 2014 that is uh, uh, complete and led me to this behemoth, my three years with Eisenhower by Harry Butcher. Um, ah. I've devoured all my Eisenhower uh, texts and here, which is for the delight of our viewing or video uh, public, are the I Still Like Ike badges, oh! which, which I sport and love. They were for the in support of an Eisenhower Memorial in Washington, D.C., campaign I completely endorse and support. And I'll put these badges on for the rest of the podcast. But obviously, Brian, you are more committed than me. Wow. Well, you know, our <laughs> viewers can decide. But uh, that button is perfect because this saves me from a difficult decision which is which of our fabulous guests was going to go first but now we got to call on peter why don't you introduce yourself and tell us about the project hi my name is peter ellenstein and i'm the producing artistic director of the new los angeles repertory company and back when i was running the william inge theater festival in kansas for many years uh, i was always looking for kansas kansas subject matter to try and create uh programs around and I stumbled on one of Ike's quotes from his Cross of Iron speech yeah. in 1953. And I knew, I grew up in, you know, I was uh, born the year he left office. And he is the first president I remember dying when I was young. But I knew almost nothing about him. I knew that he'd won the war. I knew that he had sent troops to Arkansas. And I knew about the military industrial complex line. Mm -hmm. But that was about it. And I thought of him as this kind of sweet, dodgy old guy who was a military guy. And and my parents were both uh, died in the wool liberals. And so they had voted for, uh, you know, for for Stevenson yes. both times. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, 
But I read this quote of his, which seemed profoundly anti-war, and I went, wow, that's crazy. Eisenhower said this, so I looked up the speech, and I read the whole speech, and indeed, yeah. it was really a pain to investing in America in in the, in the in for peace, and that war was absolutely necessary sometimes, but absolutely secondary. And it made me fascinated, so I started to read some other speeches, and then I thought I looked up to see if there were any plays that had been written about Eisenhower. So I thought, well, maybe we'll do one. There weren't any. There was wow. nothing. Yeah. And so my next thought is I'm calling Richard Hellison, who's maybe certainly one of the best, if not the best <laughs> playwrights I know, and he's definitely the best at creating uh, theater history plays, uh, right. taking history and making them dramatic and making them uh, both true to to the times that they were in and relevant to our times. And he's uh, and we've worked together many times and we work together very well. And so I called him to find out if he had any interest and I'll let him take it from there. Well, let me let me uh, jump to, to Richard in one second. But I have to note, uh, Peter, that my mother grew up in Smith Center, Kansas, huh. which at one point before Alaska and Hawaii was the geographic center of the United States. At least they claimed that. And uh Politically speaking, this was during the Depression and uh, and and right after the Depression. And she told me one time that until she was 21 years old, she thought Franklin Roosevelt's middle name was Goddamn. So <laughs> now that we've already busted our profanity charity for this episode, feel free to speak freely. Uh, Alex well, has a one finger comment. I would have loved that you were saying Goddamn. And I just, Peter, I just wanted to come in on your point about Eisenhower's death, because in um, Nixon's memoirs, which is not a book that's long on empathy or self-awareness, um, <laughs> that there, there's one part where he talks about his relationship with Kennedy and the searing envy and wish to be in the gang is apparent that you see a human piece there. Yeah. Really, the only other time you see a human face in that book, including the Watergate discussion, the only time you see it is when he talks about going to Walter Reed to see Eisenhower on his deathbed. And um, there you see, for all the tough carapace that Nixon grew in his political life, the importance of Eisenhower and, and how struck he was by Eisenhower's death. And, and you remember it, so I, I don't, but I, that's what I—that's the thing I remember, that it was so profound for a, for a succeeding president. Uh, and of course, there, there are children, the produce of both of those uh, as their children married. But um Anyway, I, I was really struck by how profoundly Eisenhower's death struck Nixon. Yeah. Now, Richard, you have been uh, just dubbed the greatest historical playwright ever. So what say you, sir? I say Shakespeare's agent's going to call me in about five minutes. <laughs> We're going to have it out. Uh, I can start by thanking you for having us. And secondly, I'm having the McAllen 12-year-old double cask. Perfect. Even though it's early afternoon in California. So I'm going to have to up um, my cheers. game now, you guys. You're going to have to go and get another drink. This is Sorry. Um, and I'm actually I'm doing a 24-hour play thing later, so this may help. Um, well, I'm suffering with you up here in the same time zone. So yeah, we'll, there we we'll go. Together. Um, no, Peter did that. He called me and he said, what do you think about doing a play about Eisenhower? And I think my first question was, why? Um uh, I grew up in Orange County, California, and if for some of you who know what that means, I probably don't have to say anything else, uh, although I've long since cleared out. It is purpling, um, though. It, it is, is purpling, purpling quite a bit. Yeah. It's quite a yeah, bit. Yeah. Um, but we talked about it, and um, I did some research initially, and I, and I finally came to the conclusion. I said, I don't think anybody wants to see a play where there's five guys in the suits going, but Mr. President, the Suez, 
Okay. Um, no one wants that. I don't want to write it. Um, so eventually I said, look, the only way I think this can possibly work might be if it's a one person show, we might be able to make that work. And I had in mind something like give him hell Harry. Okay. From a number of years ago. Yeah. That right. might work, but otherwise I have no idea how to approach this. And that was 10 years ago, I think. Um, and so that's why it became what it's ultimately become. And uh, of course, the great turning point was having done umpteen drafts of it when John Rubenstein joined us and then taught me what I had and more importantly, what I didn't have. Yeah. And that's what we've been doing. <laughs> well, let, let's 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 talk to John in just a moment. But can you elaborate a little <laughs> bit more, either either one of you, uh, Richard or Peter, on what is the approach you took to the actual depictions on stage? You know, a lot of recent biopics in the films, the films in the movies uh, have been not telling the whole life story, but picking like a crucial week in someone's life and using that to explain. So what approach did you take to Eisenhower for this, this play? Well, that was the big challenge in trying to decide. And we talked through many different <laughs> crucial points in his life where maybe we could tell something and we finally, uh, but there's so much, you could write 10 plays yeah. about Eisenhower. Um, there's so much material and he lived through so much and there were so many crises and so many things, uh, you know, story after story. Um, yeah. And we decided what it really was about was his approach to things and how he got to where he was and what made him really beloved by even the people who didn't agree with him politically, but, yeah. but respected by virtually everybody so that he rose up the ranks so quickly when it was finally his time yeah. um, and what what made what made him who he was and how how can that relate to where we are now but i'll let richard talk to it more in detail that's actually uh actually the story that we told from uh one of alex's great uh books uh I believe it was not the og lessons from history for our viewers who can see this, but it was the cleverly named more lessons from history. Uh, the story of the longest, one of the longer serving uh, majors and colonels in history. And then all of a sudden he's saving the free world. Um, that said, but, if I may jump in, we may need to come may. back to that. Cause I think you perhaps may. you gave him short shrift from that period, but we can come back to that. <laughs> well, okay. uh, it's a short story. I'll say that. Uh, so I think the gods are speaking to us because John's picture keeps popping up regardless of who's talking. So, so John, tell us how you got into this project and, um, and, and, uh, and, and how you became Eisenhower for this, this play. Well, you know, it was uh, just a, a sort of a, a fortunate turn of fate. Uh, I was invited to go to uh, Kansas a couple of times to participate in the Inge festival the william inge festival where uh not i don't know if it peter if it's every year every four years or every, i don't know what it is but anyway mm -hmm. they honor a playwright and mm -hmm. they invite actors many from new york some from california wherever to come and do readings of his or her plays and other things that they may have written and um i went once to honor garson canaan who was a great old friend of mine and then a second time, I had been on Broadway doing a play by David Henry Wang called uh, M. Butterfly. 
I had taken over in the part. John Lithgow did it originally. And um, I was invited to come and and do a rather substantial reading. We didn't do the whole play, I don't think. But no, right. no, but you did a couple of scenes. Yeah, yeah. a couple of big scenes uh, from it. And I was delighted. Uh, and Peter was running the festival at that point. Mm. And so we got to know each other not very well. You know, it's, it's Peter had his hands full running a giant sort of thing. It takes over the whole town. There are people staying in other people's houses and in hotels and there are uh, forums and there are readings. And it, it's a, like sort of mayhem. And Peter yeah. was able to just bring that all together and make it fun. I, I carry the mayhem with me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, really, it was an accomplishment. Uh, that, uh, and I was glad to be there. Now you cut to, I don't know how many years later, basically 2021, was it, or two? Yeah, 2021, I think. Um, I get a phone call from Peter. Uh, we haven't seen each other in the, in the interim, saying, hey, we've got this play about Eisenhower. Are you interested? He sent it to me. I read it. It was a 40-page monologue. Terrible. What the <laughs> heck <It> was... <laughs> I can't memorize that. But anyway, Peter wasn't <laughs> asking me to memorize it. He was asking me to come and just read it aloud to him and Richard. And I said, well, sure. I, you know, nobody's going nobody's gonna to destroy my career if they hear me do that badly. <laughs> so I, uh, I did. And we all met. I met Richard for the first time in a little room in, in North Hollywood. And uh, I read the play out loud. I had read it, as I said, at home and right. thought it was amazing, wonderful, but I couldn't tell if it would work as a play. Mm -hmm. I just had this vision of some old guy, maybe me, but maybe a better actor, wandering out onto a stage and saying all that stuff. And I said, I don't know, you know, uh, and they had an intermission in it, which it still does. And I said, boy, after that intermission, it's going to be, you can pick your seat, you know. Um, <laughs> but when we all got together and I just started reading it, reading it cold, I hadn't really worked on it. Yeah. I got a little bit of his voice. I listened to a lot of uh, uh, tapes and, and videos of Ike talking. And about a page in, I was hooked as an audience Hmm. even listening to my own self. And I was hooked as an actor. That happens and to it, Alex all the time, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and it just got better <laughs> from there. And it was extremely moving, very human. It's a, yeah. it's a play about a man, a person going through something on a particular day in his life, as opposed to being some kind of rehashing of history yeah. As right. told to you by some mannequin who looks like Dwight Eisenhower. So right. I was hooked at the end of that reading. I was in and remain so. That's amazing. So, and so the next the next thing that happened was John was about to leave to go do a play in New York. And he said, I, oh, I can't work on it with you guys here. But once that plays open, if you guys happen to be in New York, I'm happy to workshop it with you and we'll find a place to do a reading. And so Richard and I sort of, thought about it and went you know what we haven't been to new york in a while <laughs> let's go do it and uh, we had an invited reading at the end of what seven days or ten days that we were there 
working with John on his when he wasn't in performance, um, and at the end of that reading, and we and Richard just rewriting feverishly as John was we were hearing John do things and we were hearing what worked and what didn't and what was in the wrong order and the right order and we rewrote all throughout that, that and I think we got a script that morning that with additional changes that we went over um and we had an invited reading with a lot of theater people there and we had no idea what what it was going to be like and and the reading the response... meant I was holding the book right. and we, we did minimal blocking I sat here I stood there but basically I'm just with my nose in a script in front of the audience. So it's not a musical then? Well, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Let, let's see how the previews in New York go. And uh... yeah. yeah, I hear there's going to be a couple of theaters opening up. <laughs> uh, so you know what? We probably should back up, uh, take a step back. Uh, okay. For, because sorry, I don't I even think, no, 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 it's my fault. I don't even think we've mentioned the name of the project or talked about why it's named that or what the day in the life is. Let's let's get that uh, out to our, our viewers. Richard, take it away. Okay, it's called Eisenhower colon this piece of ground. And we don't say the word colon. But we don't say the word colon. We had a colonoscopy. <laughs> not not even not even semi. You don't even not even semi colon. Um, and uh, you'll find out in the play why this piece of ground matters because it's both a personal piece of ground and also the larger sense of yeah. the nation and the world. Um, <laughs> But the you're very right when you say what's the approach because one person shows the first one person show I've ever written, they are really hard. Yeah, they're really really hard to do, um, because you have to justify why they're talking. Yeah. Um, and as John pointed out a number of times, even when he was doing Children of a Lesser God, um, and was sign language, right, John? Um, yeah, and you had to you had to know both parts. I right. had to say all of her lines because right. she was signing. And then I had to say all of mine and while all of yours. signing. Yeah. But right. at least there was one other person on stage to play on. Yeah. <laughs> right? When it's just you for 85 minutes, let's say, um, you have to justify why they're saying what they're saying. So the trick was to find what's the shape of it. What's the, the framing? Yeah. What's the framing? Exactly. What's yeah. the framing? And I got very lucky. I don't know if I want to spoil it or not, but I found something that allowed me to frame it that would give him a forward movement to pursue something so that when he says, when he tells a story about his father, his mother going to right. West Point, D-Day, um, elements in his presidency, he has a reason to say that because he's trying to explain something or justify something or even convince himself of something yeah. he's not entirely sure is well, true. Well, sadly, uh, for our country, it's one of the few presidents in modern history that you couldn't have used an impeachment trial as the vehicle. Everyone knows oh, that that's... trials are very, uh, very good uh, plays, you know. <laughs> OK, but I will give the, I will give this away. Um, yes. give, make some news here on our podcast. OK, the play takes place after he's the president, when he's left. It's 1962. Right. All right. He's, so he's, Kennedy he's, is president. Uh, is it Columbia? He's point? in Gettysburg. He has right. he's already Columbia was actually right after World War II. It was in the 40s um oh wrong way around sorry yeah okay. yeah right yeah. uh so he's retired to gettysburg and um and this is true because this is what i stumbled on the new york times magazine came out with the first to my knowledge historians poll ranking the presidents mm. okay this is 1962 and he ranks he's, he's a year and a half out of office and he ranks 
unbelievably low. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay? yeah. I won't tell you where. Um, let's just say he and Andrew Johnson could have a cocktail together. That's unbelievable. <laughs> Miller, right. Miller, Miller, Filmer oh, yeah. is looking back at Bill, them from exactly, the top of the ladder. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, Chester Arthur is right. And, and I want to say just I, for those of you who know know anything about current rankings, don't no spoiler alerts. <laughs> I mean, no, no spoilers. No, yeah. But Schlesinger, um, Schlesinger has a has a book about ranking the presidents, isn't yes. it? Yes. And uh, I, yeah, okay. Sorry, I don't yeah. mean to. Yeah. But that's exactly right. That's who put it together was Arthur Schlesinger, and right. and of course that's the hook is he sees it and he's absolutely livid. Well, two things. One is he's furious, and of course the second question is what if they're right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, it's nice. it's reflecting back. Nice. What if they're yeah. right? Okay, I need to go back through and figure this out. Right. Okay. Because now it's about my legacy and that's about my place. So he puts story. himself on trial in effect. That's a good way to uh, put it. Yeah. Like yeah, it. he sort of he sort of starts uh, from an ego point of view. He's he's hurt. He's pissed. Yeah. And he evolves over the course of the play to a completely different line of thinking and evaluating himself not only himself but the presidency as a thing and yeah. right really human interaction i mean it goes very deep it really does and i, I can i, 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 I can the... see him oh go ahead dallas go ahead i was going to make a point about we're talking here about his time post-presidency and before we lost it i wanted to talk about right at the other end because richard mentioned his time at west point and it's always um it's always intrigued me that he came second in the exams for West Point out of everybody who'd, who'd applied, but he came first in the exams for Annapolis. Yes. Right. And, uh, and having sat the exams, the guys at Annapolis said, you're too old by like a month or two to come to Annapolis. And it like, why the hell do you let me sit the exams? Right. So, so then off he goes to, off he goes to West Point where of course, famously he blows out his knee playing football and he has to change his whole <laughs> approach to life. And he becomes a much more strategic person rather than a bull, you know, a bullish person. And I want, he might have had a whole, your whole history of, of, of Eisenhower, of military leadership of your country might have been different if the guys in the examining areas had treated him differently because he did so well. Because hey, he we might have lost Annapolis the war. And he hadn't blown out his knee. Exactly. We and might have unsuccessfully saved Britain from the Nazis. <laughs> and we talk about all of these things in the play these things all come up because i think to your point and the larger question that we could come back to is i was certainly aware of this question um and maybe as a side point i should say that the one word that always has come up in this process um certainly in our rehearsal process and our discussions in my writing the word that probably gets said the most is audience what is the audience thinking the, I cannot tell you the number of times that John would say, now, is the audience going to get this? I understand what you're trying to do, but is the audience going to get this? Or, or is this being read the right way? What are they going to take out of this? I mean, we're, right. we're always conscious about what an audience is taking away from this. But so, part of the question I thought was going to be, they're going to ask exactly what you're saying, Alex. How on earth did this guy from the middle of the country do this when all these things kept happening when he and and the only reason he ended up going to west point because he was second was the guy ahead of him failed the physical <laughs> otherwise yeah. he wasn't going to go and then he did blow and his knee out okay and the only reason so the he did that is because he didn't have the money to go to college himself and college. it was a way to get an education right for free so the, I mean, so 
guys, we're recording this on May 3rd, uh, 2023. Mm -hmm. What is the sequencing now? When does this open in LA? When can our fans go see it? Mm -hmm. What's uh, happening? Well, that's the uh, We closed in LA already. Oh, we're sorry. In New York on uh, first performance is June 13th, 2023. And we have our official opening on June 20th, 2023, where it's a limited engagement uh, through July 30th. So get your tickets now. Um, and we're playing at theater at St. Clements. It's an off-Broadway theater. Uh, that's a, a lovely theater that John has worked in a number of times already. And uh, we're, we're just really excited. We go back to work on it. We've already been doing since the show closed in January after two extensions in LA. Nice. Uh, we closed in January because we had to, there was someone, something else coming to the theater. We went back, we uh, did some more work on the script uh, and, and, used all the experience we had there to make it even stronger and we go back into rehearsal again towards the end of this month and then we'll open as i said in mid-june okay so angelinos you're out of luck unless you want to fly to new york which i would recommend we were going to put the ability to get the tickets in the show notes i think we've already kicked around the idea of potentially doing an episode of the show from the theater while it's running which would be amazing uh except you know new york in august i don't know but we'll we'll figure it out um but but let me let me get back to a question we touched on earlier, which is without any spoilers that you don't want to make, why this piece of Eisenhower's life? Why why did you decide to to pick this time period? you can enter it. No, you. It, it's because by picking this moment, it lets us reflect back on his entire sort of professional career yeah. is it allows right. us to look at his childhood his adolescence his military career his pre his nato his presidency mm -hmm. all of those things whereas if we started at an earlier point in time uh we'd have to miss some of those i mean there's a, so many places we thought about right oh yeah you know, sure we could have said it uh, two months later during the cuban missile crisis right. you know yeah but then that would have been kennedy play. Heavy then that it becomes about kennedy, the kennedy one, play. Exactly. one of the things i love about your approach gentlemen is that it, it's very it, it it's like it gives you all of the retrospective of the um frost nixon interviews right. but of course one that's been done and two, the Frost-Nixon interface meant that you're dealing as much with the ego of Frost as you were with Nixon. Yeah. This is giving you pure, undiluted insight into the individual with whom you're concerned. I really like it. Thank you. Yeah. And so the other John, thing, too, if I could just finish up that Peter's yeah, thought, yeah, sure. um, what we were saying earlier about the poll and, the, and picking on that particular date, clearly we're trying to say something about now. But the larger question that then emerges from his challenging what's your definition of presidential greatness in 1962 right. then becomes, by extension, what's our definition of presidential greatness? Yeah, perfect. How do we so, decide the values and the character and so on? Yeah, apparently it's just a coin toss now. But uh, <laughs> I, I, but so this that we Alex and I try to not go too many episodes of our show without mentioning the West Wing or Star Trek. And um, I'm, I, you think I'm going to talk about the West Wing? I'm not. I'm going to talk about the device of the character of Q in the West in in, in Star Trek putting humanity on trial and how and the trial uh, effective never ends. that was. Yeah, the trial never ends. So with that background, John, and know that you're going into New York next month, how are you preparing? Well, just as a, a, a pre-side note, 
on the very last episode of Star Trek Enterprise. Yes, sir. I, a Vulcan, assassinated the leader of the Vulcans and became the leader of the Vulcans. And yeah, then the- you, you, I'd seen you somewhere else. <laughs> I that is on my mind. Oh, well, you see, without the ears, I how am I supposed to work it out without the ears? Now I. This see. interview is over. We can't have, have this to, anymore. I have to right, know put- that I that I am the son mm-hmm. of the president of the Federation. It's true. It's true. Oh, I know. I, I know that. Uh, yes, I know. You're, yeah. I can see your father in the movie, too. Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> well, so we really have well. more to do with Star Trek than with Eisenhower. Look what we stumbled into. We yeah. will we will we will have to have another episode with you guys. But, John, um, I'm sure you studied the definitive Eisenhower performance of Tom Selleck <laughs> when you were trying to prepare for the role. But what else did you do? Ah! Well, you know, it. Uh, I am a very slow reader. And for me to to get giant volumes of history and not only read them, but absorb them and remember them, I was always fascinated by history. And I went to very good schools, thank God, and loved my history teachers. However, when it came to exam time, I didn't really do very well at all. I read it. I loved it. I understood it. But I didn't. I wasn't capable of then using it and writing essays about it. It was very difficult. Yeah. So rather than read 20 volumes about Eisenhower, which I am now doing, I listened and watched him on videos yeah. and on uh, audio tapes just to get a feeling of his rhythm and of, you know, as an actor, you sort of are part psychiatrist. And so when yeah. somebody's talking, you don't only hear the cadence and the sound and the pitch, but right. you have insight into what's making him talk inside that yeah. way. And that's what I studied most of all and um, learned the history on a sort of daily basis from Richard and Peter, who both are really up on their Ike history, if not all kinds of other history. And I would just say, well, why did he do this? And bang, we would talk for half an hour in the middle of rehearsal and I would get a really important history lesson, even if it was just about a particular sentence or moment in the play. So at this point, um, I feel uh, uh, I can't wait to read all of the books that I haven't yet read and I'm in the process of doing so. But basically it was trying to get into his heart and mind. I actually met yeah. him when I was seven. Yeah, years. yeah. tell us about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, well, it was nothing. I mean, my father was a was a very uh, a prominent uh, pianist and he would play in Washington, D.C. every year and uh, would stay at the house of of a, of a friend of, of his and my mother's, uh, a, a lady named Virginia Bacon, who was a widow of uh, a congressman, I believe, who was long dead. I never met him, but Republicans through and through. And she was good friends with Sherman Adams, who was uh, Ike's chief of staff, I believe, yeah. until he had to resign because he got a Vicuña coat. The Vicuña coat incident, yes, I recall. Yeah, something that Clarence Thomas might want to look up. <laughs> yeah. Well, now to be fair, 
Clarence only got a Vicuña stole, and that was only because they were lifelong friends. Right, right, right. So anyway. But anyway, she arranged a meeting uh, at the White House, and uh, we went there. And, uh, you know, I was seven years old or something. And But but he actually stepped away from a sort of meeting he was yeah. having with other people, went through the little crowd, and came and talked to my dad for, for quite a while and shook my hand and said, well, how are you doing? You know, and I, I was like, I, I'll never forget. Yeah, that. that's extraordinary. <laughs> well, for all of our, uh, our younger um, listeners and viewers out there who share John's, uh, you know, uh, adver adversity to massive works of history, can I just recommend lessons from history <laughs> by Alex Dean? No story takes longer than three pages so yeah, get that. it's a book designed for the smallest room in your house gentlemen <laughs> Indeed, uh, yes it, lots lots of anecdotes hey guys I'm while we while, we while we thank you while we got you can i give you a couple of my favorite eisenhower anecdotes see if they're i know it's too late to affect the draft of the play but see <laughs> uh or the text of the play you've already been performing it but uh, first of all i i mean of course eisen the secret of the bomb was kept very very close until very very late in in the war almost until it was dropped when Eisenhower was informed about it, I've always found it remarkable how how much he hated it. You know, there is a man who commanded men. It was the part of the premise was that it was going to save the lives of men who would otherwise have to die on beaches when Japan was stormed. And Eisenhower um, was uh, hated the notion of the United States leading in the development of brutal tools of war. And I always rather admired uh, that. He even hoped that the discovery of the atomic weapon could be kept a secret. Uh, he hoped that the war could be won without it and people wouldn't come to know about it. I always, given how central mutually assured destruction came to be for his presidency, I always found that background fascinating. That, you know, one of, one of the principal proponents of the art of war in the mid-20th century had that view about the ultimate weapon of war of its time. Discuss. Yeah. Do you want to do you want to tackle that, Richard? No, I agree. I think it's it's, it's the contra I don't want to call them contradictions, but the unexpected things, as you say, how could a general and we'd actually do this a number of times in the play. He reflects on I know it's strange to hear <laughs> me say that. Right. About something about military, like military industrial budgets. Complex. Yes. Or yeah. or why um why a moderately conservative republican would say anybody who says they want to do away with social security should be called what they are which is stupid um <laughs> you know uh that and he said that uh that he, he it's the moderation i mean i suppose that's the thing right. that hangs over the entire thing is right. is that how can you reconcile what are apparently two opposite things fiscal conservatism and social moderation leaning in some cases toward liberal things and have them exist in the same person where now we seem to be like, no, you pick one or the other, and then we kill the other guy. Uh, well, and and at least at least my, you know, I was born in '62, so I mm. remember his death vaguely. But but my sense is that um, he could have gone either way. He he, ah, he it was so, almost a coin toss running Brian, as a Republican or Democrat. Brian, so that's so this, the the John Gunter um, biography I referred to was one of those hastily written biographies with people who might become president. 
right? It's yeah. always weird, these alternative histories. You go back and you yeah. find them. This is from before he was elected president. And By Gun the way, John, is that's the fellow you knew, right? Yeah, John Gunther was a good, good friend. Yeah. Oh. Well, he is a he is a Man. brilliant writer. And, yeah. and the, 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 the book that he wrote about Eisenhower is unstintedly, unsentimental, clear-eyed. It's not hagiography, unlike a lot of these books. And he caveats right at the end and says, who, this is like six months before the, uh, whatever it was, a year before the, the candidates were declared. He said Eisenhower might become the candidate for the Democrats. I mean, so even someone writing the biography of the guy is like, I'm not sure which way it's going to go. Six to five and pick him. And now I've got both of our plugs in. Do you show. mind, do, do, John, do, John, do you mind just saying a bit more about how you got to know John Gunter? Who was, well, you know, again, it's through my father. I mean, I, I, I can name drop with the best of them, but almost never to my own personal credit. Simply, I was around my dad, who was sort of a world figure. And Arthur knew... Rubenstein, by the way. Yeah, we have now deduced that. We will put that in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's fun for me to say, yeah, I, I knew Picasso. I knew Stravinsky. I met Eisenhower. But it, none of them were terribly interested in me. It was simply that I was there as a, a, a young fellow. But yeah. John Gunther and, and his wife, Jane, were very, very close friends. And we would meet them. We would be traveling through Europe where my dad was playing and they would show up and we would hang together and we would eat and and they were great company. I had a slight crush on Mrs. Gunther um, as a <laughs> young teenager, but I never declared it. Um, and John, John sounds knew. like an excellent Nirvana song, by the way. Well, okay. yeah, she was beautiful <laughs> and, and very, very, very charming. Yeah. But he, nobody will, he nobody was one ever... of those people who knew everything. Right. And, oh, yeah. So, and, right. and was, well, that's like oh, Alex. Well, yeah, and, and a very outgoing and funny guy. So he yeah, would not like tell like long stories about not only history, but about all kinds of stuff and give it all kinds of color and, right. and drama. Well, and that's and how he wrote. I, I could listen to him for hours. Yeah. What nobody will ever believe that we didn't rehearse this or say give each other a heads up in advance that, that, that this guy whose book I devoured about Eisenhower 10 years ago and more is is what led me to write stories about Eisenhower and so forth, that, that you actually knew him. We did not know that in advance of this podcast. No, I did, I did no, not know that. It was not that set up. Absolutely fantastic. That's amazing. So uh, Richard or and or Peter, um, you know, we do a lot of discussion on our show about how history is made and when should it be treated as reliable and uh, all the mechanics of it. Um, do you guys have a particular message in putting on this play or is it more you're just trying to entertain and convey Eisenhower the man or is there an angle here? Um, I, I think you got to be really careful when you're dealing with drama about yeah. messages. I prefer to think of it in terms of asking questions. You put it up there. You can't tell the audience what to think. Um, they'll take away what they take away. Um, I don't know why this jumped into my head earlier today. I was thinking about the, the, the apocryphal story about the guy who went to see Death of a Salesman when it was first out and was over returned to his wife and said, I always said that New England territory was no damn good. <laughs> okay. um, that's what he took away. <laughs> right. Um, nice. All you can do is just put 
it up there and to, and to be right. as honest and truthful as you can. But even that's a question. And I think it was one of the things we possibly talked about previously when we're dealing with historical fiction. What's the what are the levels? How much right. history? How much fiction? Um, to my knowledge, Henry V never actually said once more to the breach, dear friends, once more, close up the wall of their English dead. Yeah, but it's a yeah. great line. <laughs> Uh, and, a great and it encapsulates scene. the spirit of the man as, as exactly uh, so the extent to which you tell the truth by other means might be a way to put it right um we do have a lot more video of eisenhower than we did of henry the fifth we did that yeah. is also yeah. true that is actually a fact that, that um, is true but can you get into and this is actually interesting is something that uh one of eisenhower's mentors a general named fox connor who taught him yeah. a great deal um they would spend hours and connor would quote shakespeare and he would say the thing about when he writes generals, he's he knows these soldiers. He's just taking yeah. what he knows about these soldiers he's met in the Midlands or in London and wherever. And he's applying yeah. that knowledge to Henry V, to whoever, okay, the right. generals. Um, but he we have scenes, we have a scene in the play, which obviously took place very realistically in Ike's life, that very much mirrors Henry V visiting. Visiting the, the troops the night before yeah. the battle. The night before yeah. D-Day. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think it's fiction because you're making stuff up. And obviously I'm quoting when I can, but right. I'm I'm not unwilling to change an actual factual line to make the rhythm better. I'm not going to be yeah. verbatim right. if it's making it more dramatically interesting. But as long as it, it, you have a fundamental truth, it seems to me, about what you're saying, and you're asking a question that has relevance to a contemporary audience, not telling them what to think, but saying, look, this right. is a man who lived and said these things and believed in these things and had these values. And we're going to show you that. And then you take it from there. Okay. Right. And, and where they came from, I mean, part of it, the, the, the fascination for me of, of people like Eisenhower or Eleanor Roosevelt is how they grew and changed over time and how they applied the things that happened to them in their lives to themselves and made themselves into better people. And as opposed to sticking with what they knew and that was it, there was, uh, while the values may have been there, the the circumstances were there. And we, we cut many scenes from this play that were wonderful scenes on their own and we just didn't have time and room for them about different lessons he learned in right. humility well, and understanding. And I would love to see the director's cut. Yeah, exactly. Not least because you know the books that I've been writing are about lessons from 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 history. But your point about lessons that he took about humility and so forth. Richard was mentioning um, Connor, Major Major General uh, Connor. Connor yeah. yeah, when um, when Eisenhower worked for him, it was twenty two to twenty four. Mm -hmm. And I, there's a, some very interesting lessons I think that he took from Connor. The first was constant study that the role, one of the roles of a soldier is to constantly continue to educate yourself rather than to think that you're the, the finished product. The second is on a more kind of basic uh, level was that Connor said to him several times, you see that guy over there, George Marshall, that's one of the most brilliant soldiers of his generation, junior guy at the time, right? And Eisenhower never forgot that, and, and so it came to pass. But I also, in the, he taught him things about, that he foresaw things about the Second World War that Eisenhower came to live Versailles made a second war inevitable. You know, Connor believed that um, that it would be a coalition war uh, against the Germans, and that America would be in it again. Um, that it would be um, uh, won by the Western Allies, but with a unified command. 
you know eisenhower said all this in his in his in his diaries and i i know i owe these insights to john rubenstein's friend john gunther but you know he, he uh connor said that the war would come within 30 years you know this was a we started working with him in 22 so also correct and he said that the chief challenge for the western powers fighting germany would be supply chains mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, this is incredibly far-sighted. There are so many lessons from history to be taken from the the general that taught Eisenhower. And this is actually yeah. this brings me back around to the point that we were talking about earlier about my the previous episode, right? And then that period of time. Oh, when, this is the part you think you, I got. What I got well, wrong. the only reason yeah, I yeah, say yeah. that is because, and I love that episode, by the way. Um, Thank you very but much. But it, it may have left the impression with some people that he basically went off to some backwater for twenty years and was simply a captain or a major. And that that's no, yeah, you're right. It wasn't did. that. And what's really remarkable, and he really chafed against that. Um, he, once he was in and knew that the army was going to be his career and they were sending him to coach football. Right. <laughs> he right. was like, you know, I, he didn't get a battlefield command. He never had a battlefield command ever. He, he missed. Well, he did. Didn't he entirely. In North Africa. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of. Um, he was sent to coach football. He was sent to run a tank training camp. We talk about that in the play. Um, but he, so he, in terms of we look at and I, and I think Brian said this the idea that now that you go straight up you're either you're up or out you keep advancing up yeah and Eisenhower's career was almost like chess it was like sometimes you move forward sometimes you move laterally sometimes you go right. backwards and then you make a jump and at every one of those steps he was learning something so when he was part of the first cross country auto trek to drive across the country he discovered how bad the roads were yeah, and right. that taught so, him something. He was responsible so he for helping the highway system. Yeah. The highway system. He was responsible for helping decommission after World War One, and he realized what happens with all that material and those soldiers. Um, he was uh, studying battlefield plans, but you know, Connor would always show, have him read historical battlefield plans and so on. He went and did the guidebook. He was furious. The guidebook to the monument war monuments after World War One, the war he missed. Right. He had to go write a guidebook. But he right. knew the terrain. He knew the place. Yeah. And so when it finally, this is maybe my one, I'll finish with this, my one lovely thing about Fox Connor was once again, Eisenhower had been sent to, to coach football. And he said, they're not sending me to the schools. I want to go learn. And the chief of infantry said, well, tough. Okay. If you want, you go down to Fort Benning and command a tank command, but that's what all you're going to get. And Fox Connor sent him a telegram that said, Whatever orders you get from the War Department, obey them. Do not resist. <laughs> Resistance is, is futile. What is that? Right. Well, the next orders he got were to leave the infantry and go be a recruiter in Denver, which yeah. was like being sent to nowhere. Well, but what he didn't know was Connor had pulled him off the infantry and put him under the authority of the adjutant general. And the adjutant general was the one who could send him to the command and staff school in Leavenworth, which is where he went and right. emerged number one. So, right. you know. although, although so it seems like the next play needs also, to be about Connor. Yeah. He, oh, it's yeah, amazing. He, he did also yeah. command a tank um, corps training center, didn't he? Yes. In Pennsylvania. Uh, it was a remarkable. He was only a major and he had like oh. 9,000 men underneath him. So um, pretty good going. Um, so what, I just wanted to give you a couple of Eisenhower lessons that are useful, particularly for Brian. Um, First of all, Eisenhower's rule for his staff uh, when the war came to Europe and his command came here was get on with the British or get out. I think that's a very good rule, uh, <laughs> uh, Brian. Uh, his second rule was calling a, a British officer a bastard is OK. 
calling him a British bastard, you're going to be on the ship home. <laughs> well, I, it's funny. I would I would never have raised this, Alex. But now that you've teed it up, <laughs> I remember a, a visit I made to the Imperial War Museum 20 years ago, maybe. And they have the brochures that were handed out to American GIs who got stationed in the UK yeah, ahead of D-Day. And it's 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 amazing reading. It's like, don't lord it over them that you have chocolate and stockings <laughs> and they don't. And don't assume that because of their mannerisms, they all like men better than women. I mean, it is a crazy. Oh yeah, he, he's not even paraphrasing. The weird shit. No, it's yeah. close to the exact thing. You yeah, want that in the play, true. John? Should we do a quick rewrite? Is that yeah? Let's put that. All right, okay. <laughs> well, it, so if you're looking for interest, those those that, that color detail here is my my real other Ike color detail. Eisenhower was a betting man, and I I I, I I'm always interested in the things that people do. Under, I, I've got several stories in the books about what people do under stress. Uh, you know, whether it's taking pot shots at enemy reconnaissance planes by leading field marshals and generals. Uh, <laughs> Eisenhower um, won his bet with Churchill which was they bet they had a bet with each other on what the number of Italian prisoners of war captured on Pantelleria would be. <laughs> uh, Ike, Ike won that one, but he lost his bet with Montgomery on the date of the end of the war and complained bitterly that the postponement of D-Day was to blame for him losing the bet. <laughs> I, I just love the idea that as you're marshalling Europe's forces, you you you, you bet uh, you bet the British field marshal sixpence, you know, and, that, and that, that you'll joke about it with each other months later, and it somehow lightens the mood and lightens the air and lets you carry on with these dreadful tasks. And yet it got Pete Rose kept out of the Baseball Hall of Fame. I don't know. <laughs> One of the great stories that didn't get, end up in the play was also about betting because Eisenhower was a brilliant poker player. Right. And when he, I forget, it was early in one of his early commands, they had a regular poker game and he would always win. And there were a couple of other guys who were good who would always win. And there was one uh, young officer who was terrible uh, and lost all of his money and his savings. And he was about to get married and he'd lost everything. So Eisenhower, unbeknownst to him, got the other guys together to concoct the game where they would lose all the money back to him. Oh. So they lost all the money back to him, and Ike then canceled the games after that, and said that he would never again play with people who couldn't afford to lose money. Fair. That's a good story, gentlemen. Uh, we are running close on our time. Uh, we would definitely want you all back again, hopefully from the theater in New York in Absolutely. the summer. Fascinating. I got. I, I have to. I have to do one more thing though before we go, and we'll put all the information about the play in the show notes and. I can't wait to see it. As our viewers know, my grandparents wrote this little book, Flying Saucer Pilgrimage, in the late 1950s, in which they chased around uh, UFO sighting people uh, in, in the U.S. and Mexico for a year, and they recorded all their stories. And in it is reprinted verbatim from December 16th, 1954. And I'm going to ask you all what Ike, WWID, what would Ike do? A telegram that my parents sent to Ike from Mexico. And I'm going to read it to you now. Oh, no. To Dwight D. Eisenhower, President of the United States, Washington, D.C., December 16th, 1954. Your reference in a recent press conference to flying saucers has astounded us. After months of private investigation, we are convinced 
that spaceships from outer space are making a detailed survey of the Earth at the present time. We believe you are, make, you are being given a distorted and prejudiced picture of what may be the greatest cosmic phenomenon of this age by your Air Force advisors. We think you are the greatest president of the United States since George Washington, but we are highly disappointed that you are listening to these experts instead of investigating the facts for yourself. I hope you will appoint a scientific commission to investigate and report Bryant and Helen Reeve, U.S. citizens, 1954. How would Ike have responded? Well, that scene was actually in the first act originally. Um, <laughs> and because I uh, I'd come across it and we just we ran short of time. So, you know, it was well, we had to, it was that or Khrushchev and we, it was a, we it had was to a go with Khrushchev. At, but we decided, you know, we had to cut the aliens. Fair. Well, Fair. first off, they're union aliens and they are very, very expensive. And <laughs> luckily, the producers of American Horror Story do not agree with you because they have a whole season about Ike and aliens, which I'm sure you've probably seen. Um, guys, this has been great. Uh, I just I have one last uh, kind of serious question. Um, and I'd ask this to all of you. What do you hope the people that come to New York and see this play, as Alex and I will, what are the most important things to take away from it in 2023 or four? John? Wow. That's a big one uh, because there's so many, but I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a compilation of pretty much everything. All of us have been saying this whole time, which is these days, one doesn't hear or read about a current politician, uh, be it a president or, or a congressperson or, you know, state legislator, talking with the intelligence foresight, as Alex was saying earlier, uh, and compassion and honest caring about the people he yeah. or she represents. Be There's it no statesman. Yeah, be it the soldiers he's sending to war, be it the citizens of the country that he's the president of, or the students at Columbia University, he genuinely cared about them and wanted to make their lives better. And even though that sounds like a cliche, it's rare, if almost ever, that we hear any of our politicians reflect that kind of humanity. That's what I want them to take away from it. Fair. Gentlemen? Um, I'm going to let Richard speak last because I'm sure he'll have the uh, wonderful things to say. For me, it's um, all of what John said, but also Eisenhower says stuff, stuff that's going to shock liberals and is going to shock conservatives who both think they have an idea of who he was. Yeah. And because he's the one saying it, they're, they're able to take it in and reflect on it in a way and think about it in a way without the defensive team's right. attitude that we well all said. seem to carry with us. Yeah. And yeah. that sense of reevaluating that, that, that uh, we should not 
we're all human beings. We're all on this planet together. We're all in this, in, except for you, Alex, are in the country together. <laughs> and we're, um, and we have to deal with this stuff and turning everybody else into an enemy. Yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe, Just, maybe his example can keep us from retreating into our corners. Yeah. So, so that sense of both self-reflection and looking at your neighbor and listening to your neighbor a little bit differently and opening one's mind and embracing a center because that's yeah. where most of the people live. And yeah. I'll turn it over to Richard for more. Richard. Uh, very little I can add to that, to what both John and, and Peter have said. Um, the only thing I can think of is, um, I quote, I have him quote the West Point cadet prayer uh, in the play. And the line that always jumped out at me when I first read it is, make me to choose the harder right instead of the easier wrong. Yeah. And I, I think if people come out of the play saying it's hard, it's tough, it's not easy to live. There's a lot yeah. of challenges. But if we can, and we're able to do it, we have done it in the past, we're capable of it. If we can continue to make ourselves to choose the harder right instead of the easier wrong, we'll come out of this. We'll be fine. There's a perfectly chosen line, if I may say, because the man truly believed that, I think. And that's a, you, you match the art directly to the subject very well. Thank you. I wanted to quote one line which didn't make it into the play, and there's Please. maybe one of my favorites, which is, uh, and he said it many different ways. So he paraphrased himself in it. And I don't even know whether he coined it, but he said, when going into battle, the plan is meaningless. Yeah. But the planning is indispensable. Yeah. 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 And yeah. That's a way of approaching most things in life. Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. It's, it's very <laughs> profound and there's, there's multiple versions of it. Uh, I think Patton said that no battle plan survives the first shot. And Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan until I smack him in the mouth. And, <laughs> and but it's, face. but it's true. It's, it's, you, you, if you're not prepared to modify your thinking, then you're not prepared. End of story. Great conversation, guys. Thank you so much. Amazing. We're gonna Thank we're you. gonna invite all Thank of our you. listeners to come to the show notes. Uh, to we're gonna put it in the show notes. Come to the play. We'll hope to see you there. Thanks, guys. guys. Thank Good luck with the show. Thank so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cheers, guys. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Kaur, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers. Cheers.